as a teenager growing up in my, and even um, to my early 20s, I would never speak up for myself at all. So even if I was in a situation in, in which something happened openly and it was obvious, it was clear that it wasn't my fault, it had nothing to do with me, yeah. and someone jumped up and said it, it was my fault, I would literally say nothing. And it was a very scary place to be in because it's scary and awkward because you just cannot speak up. You can't speak up. It's scary. You you shiver. Like I had anxiety, not anxiety attacks per se, but I just shivered physically Mm -hmm. sometimes and my heart would race. And because within me, deep down within me, I feel like there was an urge to speak out, say it wasn't you. It wasn't you. But physically, I just couldn't do it because I was conditioned. I'd been conditioned from childhood not to speak up for myself. Um, that also impacted me as, you know, I became a mom. I have three kids and um, it, it became even more obvious. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Anya Fombad, and I spark the heart conversations that challenge questionable cultural and societal norms that threaten the well-being of the African community And I also share stories about growing up as Africans in Africa and in the diaspora. I strongly believe that normalizing open discussions and sharing experiences, whether good or bad, will not only make you find your voice, but will broaden your sense of purpose and empower others to do the same. So if you have ever tried challenging certain African cultural and societal doctrines, or if you have ever felt like it is about time that we confronted these issues in our African community and do better as a people, or even if you have always been interested in learning about the experiences of other Africans growing up in Africa and the diaspora, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Living African. The following episode contains stories that some viewers may find disturbing, including graphic depictions of rape, sexual assault, and child abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Living African Podcast. Today, we will be talking about rape culture, which is very rampant and real in our community. This will be a two-part segment, and in the first segment, We will discuss rape from a victim's perspective, where she will share her story of being sexually assaulted and harassed by not one, not two, but three people she trusted. In the second segment, we will further talk about the impact of rape on her life, how she sought help through therapy, and we will talk about some action steps that our community could take to curb the prevalence of rape cases in the community. Hope this episode helps someone going through a similar situation, and may we all normalize having these discussions in our community. So just in the last year, we have heard about so many rape cases, which have reached a dead end because of low conviction rates of the abusers or lack of resources to help victims and sensitize the communities. You know, I always come with, you know, facts. And so here are some numbers that show the prevalence of rape and highlights the need for such discussions. Approximately 35% of women worldwide have experienced sexual harassment in their lifetime, according to World Population Review data of Rape Statistics by Country 2020. 
And considering the fact that many women seldom speak up about their experience, these numbers could actually be higher than 35%. Up to 70% of women have experienced physical and or sexual violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime, according to data from the United Nations. Less than 40% of women who experience sexual violence seek help and less than 10% seek assistance from law enforcement, according to the data available on rape in most of the countries. And last but not the least, out of the top 10 countries in the world with the highest rape rates, four out of the top five, listen to this again, four out of the top five countries are from Africa, with South Africa having the highest rape rate in the world, as one out of every four men in South Africa have admitted to committing rape, according to a survey conducted by the South African Medical Research Council. So considering these staggering numbers, in addition to the fact that rape cases actually seem to be increasing with time, it makes me wonder, why do rapists still have their way so easily why aren't rape cases decreasing and what is the community doing to influence or stop the prevalence of rape cases? So today I have here with me someone who will hopefully answer these lingering questions using her experience. Mani Anabur is a domestic violence advisor who works for a UK-based domestic abuse organization. She is also an educator and an advocate against child sexual abuse. She is a published author of two books, Cactus in a Calabash and Storm Not Strong Enough, which are centered around her experience with child sexual abuse. So welcome, Mani. It's so great to have you on today. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here today. Me too. Thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, to talk to us and share your experience. And I hope that this podcast really impacts anyone who's going through, you know, what you went through or has gone through what you went through. So let's just cut to the chase. So can you please walk us through a brief synopsis of your experience with sexual and physical abuse growing up? Yes, thank you. So I grew up in Cameroon and that's where my sexual abuse actually took place. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a household with my immediate family and with extended family as well. So in total, we were on average about 30 people in the household. It was a big household. So we fit in very nicely without it being cramped or too crowded. Yeah. Um, so we also had people who work in the household. So you could call them house helps, house boys or house girls. Yeah. Um, we had one of each, a house boy and a house girl. So we had a house boy at the time. I was eight years old. And um, when he came to work for the family. So as a house help, he just did the laundry, cleaning, cooking and um, looking after doing other running other errands. Yeah. So from the age of eight years old, he started grooming me, but I did not, obviously I'm a child. I did not know what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, he started grooming me and um, eventually ended up sexually abusing me until I was nearly 11 years old. The grooming of the entire process actually started with him being very nice to me and my siblings and um, to all the other younger people, young kids in the house, you yeah. know, being very nice, being very helpful, 
you know, uh, serving us our food at the table, playing games with us, you know, innocent games, nothing sexual or inappropriate. Just befriending us and being overly nice um, yeah. Yeah. In, in, in every way you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And he, my parents and other grown-ups, other adults in the house loved him because he was very proactive mm-hmm. in terms of his work. And I just have to highlight that that is usually uh, the case with sexual predators. Sexual predators. Exactly. Yes. They, um, that's usually part of the grooming process. They come in and they assess the situation and start doing whatever they need to do to Mm -hmm. rape the child, to sexually abuse the child Mm -hmm. um, with a a high guarantee that the child will not tell anyone or that no one will find out. So that's all part of the grooming process. So my grooming process started with him being nice Mm -hmm. and then gradually he moved on to being verbally intimidating Mm -hmm. and then physically intimidating. So that's then it moved into actual full-on physical abuse yeah and then it went on to me being sexually abused right so that was my entire process and it wasn't just me that the 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 physical abuse happened to it was also to my brothers my younger brothers yeah yeah Mm. wow that is a very very you know, sad or even tragic experience to go through at such a very tender age. And actually, you highlight all of this experience in further detail in your book, Cactus and the Calabash. So if the listeners want to grab a copy, they can actually grab that from Amazon. Cactus and the Calabash is the name of the book. And there were so many gems in that book that, you know, just definitely highlighted the issues that we all face in our, especially in our African communities, which actually exacerbates, you know, the type, the, the, the rape cases that happen within our community. And I, I, I really hope that we can shed more light on those issues using your experience. Now, in your book, you mentioned that about it was very normal in the Cameroonian, also in the African community, you know, to actually just push things under the rug, right? We don't really talk about things as much. And so we really never get to address certain kind of issues for fear, you know, of either being you know, judged or people just not trusting you or you being exposing yourself. So this actually is the reason why I decided to start this podcast to encourage open discussions about, you know, things like that, which are not otherwise talked about. So can you just let us know how that impacted your ability to express yourself or even speak up when all that, like with everything else that was going on with you? Yes, that's a very important point because it's not just in um, my family that that was commonplace. I think, yes, as you pointed out, in our community, it's very, very normal and um, very common for things not to be discussed. There's no open discussion. Um, And in my family in particular, things were, as I stated, pushed under the rug. So how that impacted me was I, you know, that's what I was used to doing. So I lacked communication skills completely. As a teenager growing up in my, and even to my early 20s, I would never speak up for myself at all. So even if I was in a situation in, in which something happened openly and it was obvious, it was clear that it wasn't my fault, it had nothing to do with me, yeah. and someone jumped up and said it, it was my fault, I would literally say nothing. And it was a very scary place to be in because it's scary and awkward because you just cannot speak up. You can't speak up. It's scary. You you shiver. Like I had anxiety, not anxiety attacks per se, but I just shivered physically Mm -hmm. sometimes and my heart would race. And because 
within me, deep down within me, I feel like there was an urge to speak out, say it wasn't you, it wasn't you. But physically, I just couldn't do it because I was conditioned, I'd been conditioned from childhood not to speak up for myself. Um, That also impacted me as, you know, I became a mom, I have three kids, and um, it, it became even more obvious and more um, highlighted when I became a mom because you know you start hanging out with other people who are who other parents and you see how they're parenting their kids and you find that you're not actually feeling you don't feel comfortable talking to your kids or expressing yourself verbally you know which was that was one of the things that I noticed about myself even having interpersonal skills with friends Mm -hmm. I always tended to to remain on the outside. So I did have friends who loved me for me, yeah, but yeah. there was a part of me that wondered, I wonder why they, what they like me for, because I didn't feel like I was up to scratch mm-hmm. to be friends with them. This was in secondary school. And I went to secondary school in Cameroon as well in a boarding school. Yeah. And, you know, I had so many friends, but always wondered, always felt like an outsider, despite the fact that I had so many friends. So yeah. it did impact my interpersonal skills my social skills I I would not say any of my friends would have would label me and as antisocial but I felt antisocial because I never really knew what to do in social situations Mm -hmm. I never felt confident I completely lacked confidence I had very low self-esteem I had low Mm self-worth really so there's so many ways in which not speaking not having open an open line of communication with your children affects the child. You know, we parents do not realize that, but it really, really deeply, profoundly impacts children. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much for highlighting that, you know, and actually I, I, I was just doing reading about, you know, rape cases and just the whole topic of rape, which is very extensive. And I came up, I discovered that, you know, there are some characteristics of abuse victims, especially sexually abused victims. It's like their confidence is destroyed. They're antisocial. They feel guilty. They have lack of focus. They can't really focus well in whatever they're doing, whether at school, at home, they're very disengaged. They have post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, they, either avoid sex altogether or actually eventually become uh, sexually promiscuous. I mean, we have seen that in the case of like Eric Kelly, he was sexually abused and then he became sexually mm-hmm. promiscuous. You know, there actually studies have shown that people who actually were abused before are at high risk of being assaulted again in the future. Mm-hmm. And also mothers who were sexually abused as children sometimes experience a more intense pro- or prolonged postnatal depression. And reading through your book, Cactus in a Calabash, actually each, every single one of the things that I just mentioned actually happened to you. I mean, it was like your case was like the book example of what happens to abuse victims. I mean, we don't even have enough time to go through each and every one of those things, but you were really explicit in that book, which, you know, I really feel like it's something that we as Africans, every African needs a copy of that book to really understand intimately what happens physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, mentally to sex abuse victims. Now, I want to really highlight the fact that, you know, about the studies that show that people who have been sexually abused are actually at higher risk of being sexually assaulted again in the future. In your book, you actually mentioned that you were sexually assaulted by your uncle again. And that wasn't even after you were already done being sexually assaulted by the houseboy. It was 
at the same right. time, you know, so you were at home sexually assaulted by the houseboy, and then out of home, you were sexually assaulted by your uncle. And then, of course, as you grew up to into an adult, you traveled out of the country, you went to the UK, and you were actually physically abused to the point of almost being sexually abused by someone you considered a very close friend. So, I mean, I, I would only imagine that it must have been really traumatizing to be continuously betrayed by the people that you probably look up to or you trust or you thought maybe had good intentions for you. So how did all of those events actually affect your relationship with family, especially male family members and also your male friends that you made? That's a very good question and a good point. Yes, how it affected my relationship with, with male, with men, was, well, I, 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 I didn't trust men at all. I didn't trust anyone. So I wouldn't even say it's just men. I didn't trust people. Yeah. And I was very guarded all the time. My relationships with my female friends was guarded on my side, on my part, mm -hmm. but they would not have realized it because I was just the normal me all the time. And it wasn't mm -hmm. me uh, pretending. I was just myself with them. But in my mind, so psychologically, I always wondered why I was different from um, why my, my friendships with each individual friend were, were, were different than their individual friendships with each other. I felt like I should be more like them. I should be more open. I should be more, you know, I, I just felt different. I felt like yeah. I never really fitted into every single friendship with men or women that I had. But to your question, how it affected my relationship with male friends, uh, I started dating my now husband when I was 19 mm -hmm. and um, it was a nightmare to say the least. Mm -hmm. So I hated the smell of the a manly smell. I just hated a masculine smell. Yes. So whether yeah. it's perfume or deodorant or what, I just hated the smell. Mm -hmm. And um, I hated the smell of sperm. I hated yeah. So yeah. naturally I was a mess when it came to be, be, being intimate. I got over that after a very, very long time. Um, mm. But initially, that's how it was. But I had been conditioned to, to be able to deal with this. So even in my interaction with guys, the guy would not notice per se, because mm -hmm. I was, I, my body had, my physiological self had been conditioned to react calmly. So yeah. I was usually calm on the outside, but inside I was literally having a, an attack, an yeah. anxiety attack. Yes. Yeah, that's so, basically um, the post-traumatic Exactly, Stress, yeah. exactly. So, um, so I did have uh, triggers. Initially, some of my triggers in the beginning were wet bathrooms. I did not like wet bathrooms at all. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't even that I didn't like them. I just re reacted really negatively whenever I found myself in it. Whenever I stepped into a, a wet bathroom, it yeah. would remind me of being raped because when I was a child, I was always raped in the wet, the wet bath, the bathroom in which it was always wet. Yeah. For some reason. Yes. And the bathroom was always wet. Uh, that bathroom was always wet because there was no shower curtain around the shower bits. So yeah. if you yeah. walked into the, the bathroom, there's water all over the floor. And yeah. that's where I was raped uh, most of the time. So growing up as an adult, I just had a, a really, really hard time having a shower. If the bathroom was wet, I would literally have to walk in and even if I walked stepped into a bathtub as if there was water there I would not be able to step into it I would have to dry it with a dry towel wow. completely the walls the curtain and the floor and then have a shower um wow. so it, it really uh sh shifts your life it, you readjust your life in order to 
to accommodate this this thing that is now you. It, it becomes yeah. you. So, um, but with other with with my husband, I think because he understood well, not fully, but he knew that yeah. I just hated bathrooms and it, it made me feel nauseous. It made me feel anxious. He would always just dry the bathroom for me if I had to have a shower after him. Um, mm-hmm. he, he did whatever he needed to do to make it comfortable for me, even though he and I both didn't really fully understand what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you very much for sharing that. Actually, you touched a lot also on my next question, which was going to be about the PTSD, that's a post-traumatic stress disorder, which we may visit eventually. But, you know, in your book, again, like in that bathroom, you really detailed every single thing that happened. And to know that you were not raped just like once every couple of days. No, you were raped sometimes multiple multiple times a day. I mean, I would not even imagine what you went through. And then at the same time, you were also physically abused, like not just the way a kid can have a spanking. This was like adult style physical abuse, you know? It was torture. Yeah, torture, basically. Yeah, that's what it was. And eventually this boy, the house boy, he actually was abusing, you know, your brothers as well. I mean, the kind of abuse you know, like beating you guys up with like any kind of tool and stuff and even like force feeding you guys. And when you throw right. up, making you to eat the eat barf it. that you just threw up. I mean, I, that that is extreme torture. It's, that's yeah. child abuse, actually, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, I can't imagine what you and your brothers went through. I mean, what really <clears throat> broke my heart, too, was that you were you had so much compassion for your brothers that you actually offered to take the beating on on their behalf. And sometimes he gave you the option of either choosing between being bitten or being raped. Yeah. I mean, for an eight year old to have that kind of choice. I mean, I don't, I can't even imagine. I have nieces, I have nephews. I cannot imagine having to put them in that kind of situation where they, at the very young tender age, they have to, you know, choose between being raped and bitten, which no one is better, you know? So, I mean, how how did this whole experience actually impact you and what was going on in your head when you, every time you experience this kind of abuse, especially when he was beating up your brothers and stuff? I think at the time you're you're so young or well let me I was so young and obviously naive and ignorant and not knowledgeable about anything that all I wanted was for the beating and the suffering to stop that's all I wanted I at least knew to pray and I knew that if you pray to God you know God listens to little kids prayers we are all little kids so I used to pray you know, and just ask God to please make it stop. Please make it stop. I remember so many times just asking God to please make it stop when I'm crying. But I was, in many ways, I was grateful that I was able to take the beating and to take the the sexual abuse just as long as he doesn't beat my brothers up because they were so little. I remember how little they were. And I guess because I'd gone through that whole experience on my own, because technically I didn't feel like I had anyone to to talk to. Um, I felt uh, like I was, I felt like very protective of them. Mm -hmm. So I, in that moment, it didn't, it, the impact it had on me was just, I wanted to ensure that I protect them even more, even more uh, pumped 
yes. to protect them. That's all that I was feeling. So yes. I never really felt sorry for myself until much later when I was a little bit older. I think I was I was 10. Then, you know, maybe I had grown matured a little bit more and I just felt one day you know what I've had enough I've had enough and I started speaking back to him you know talking back rudely and saying we're not doing this we're not going to do that you know at that point I started talking back but Mm -hmm. before then up until that point I I just felt very protective like I need to protect my brothers from being beaten Um, and that was it really yeah yeah wow so um was there ever a time that you were also afraid that he would rape your brothers too I never, ever felt that way. And it never crossed my mind because I didn't know what this thing he was doing was. Yes. I had no idea what it was. All I knew was what the actions. I knew what he was doing. And I'd come to know that it's supposed to be a secret. No one should know about it. And then, you know, later on when I found out, oh, this is what happens and women get pregnant. So I thought, oh, dear, that means I've been doing something wrong. So if I speak about it, then I would be in trouble. So that made it made me to keep it even more of a secret. So right. I didn't think at all that he could be doing this extra thing because obviously the main thing that he did to, to my brothers and I was to beat all of us. But mm-hmm. the main thing, the main extra thing that he did to me, which he didn't do to them, was the sexual abuse. So yeah. I never thought he he could do it to them. I didn't think so because he always made it obvious that mm-hmm. it was that they should stay away he said yeah, stay away yeah. stay there eat your food stay there don't come out of this room while I do this here well he never said while I do this but he always went yeah, off with me yeah. so that ins- insinuated to me that they don't know about this on and they should not know about this and so I kept that from them yeah sort of I told them but mm-hmm. they didn't, I didn't really understand what I was saying because yeah. all I I remember having having told them once that oh all he does is you know I just lie down and he does this and he does that and you know it doesn't hurt you know it doesn't hurt this was before he actually started having intercourse right so when it was when it was touching me I was really pleased I remember telling my my direct follower that this is what he's doing and um, it's really it's really okay the punishment is really fine like I'm so happy that he's doing this it's not beating me it doesn't hurt all my my focus was on it doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt so I never, ever thought that he could be doing the same thing to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just your response actually highlights, strongly highlights the need for sex education in our community. Because I've read a couple, a lot of stories from rape victims and their very first encounter at their very first encounter, which is obviously when they're very young, they know that it's bad, but they don't know what it is. You know, so it's like they can't even explain what it is because they don't even know. I mean, they know it's bad, but they don't even know how they can't appreciate how bad it is because they don't even know what it is. So Mm -hmm. in our communities, it's very rare or seldom for parents to, you know, give that education, that sex education, you know, to kids because they think giving the sex education to kids is actually pushing them to do to go have sex. But the earlier you give your child sex education, the better, because at the age of eight, if you actually knew what sex was, if you actually knew that it was meant for adults, if you actually knew that this is something that you do to get pregnant and you had all of that education from your parents or someone who you looked up to, you would have definitely stopped this at an early age because guess what? You would have been able to even know how to explain it to your siblings or to your mother, you know? So that's definitely one thing that we have to 
really push forward. So I personally will push forward, you know, and encourage sex education in African communities, especially. Now, uh, I mean, with all of that, that happened, you guys were severely abused. I mean, I know in your book, you even wrote one time where the boy put your junior brother in a bag, you know, and bit him up and put him and tied him inside a rice bag and threw him over the fence. And it was literally a valley down below over the fence. And he just rolled. I mean, that kind of torture, I can't even imagine anybody Mm -hmm. doing that. That, That's not a human being. I'm sorry. You know, and you guys had all the bruises and all the marks, but it's like nobody noticed. Even when you attempted to speak up, you know, he manipulated you so much to the point that you even actually trusted him more than your parents. He told you your parents do not believe you. And unfortunately, your parents do not believe you that first time. But that also highlights another thing that you know, as an African community, especially as elders in the community, we have to bring ourselves down to the children's level and listen, listen Mm -hmm. to them when they speak to us, because we will catch a lot of cues that we may not otherwise, unless we listen, you know? Mm -hmm. So how did this abuse actually shape your outlook on life growing up? And how has that changed today? Oh, completely. Because I feel like growing up in that situation from age eight to 11, you grow up lost. You literally do not even know who you are. You have no sense of who you are, no sense of where you're headed. Yeah. So I, I I, completely, I had no focus whatsoever. My my dad is very, you know, he he wanted me to study medicine, for instance. So he had a plan for my, my, my life, my career. Like every African um, parent, right? Right. <laughs> so anyway, so unfortunately, I didn't get the grades to get into med school. And so he at some point said, okay, you know, study pharmacy. And I go to study pharmacy. I'm very, I I just have no focus, no direction. So I'm doing well at pharmacy school, mm-hmm. but I'm not there. I just yes. wasn't there. I I I had lots of friends again, but I wasn't there. I was so depressed, you know, mm-hmm. come to realize later, I was depressed for so many years yes. throughout university, but I did not even realize it because I didn't know what depression, depression was. Depression is, yeah. Yes, I didn't know what depression was. I mean, yes, being in the West, being in the UK, I've heard that about depression. I know what it, the signs are. I know mm-hmm. the symptoms, but I still naively looked at it like, their thing like a western thing it's not a black thing Mm -hmm. it's not an african thing put it that way um Mm -hmm. we don't get depressed we are resilient you know so so all of of my childhood literally shaped shaped all those ideas and those um uh, misperceptions into Mm -hmm. into my head and so i had to literally learn all this on my own learn those lessons yeah. and then relearn so yeah. it, it it's affected me in such a, a tremendously negative way yeah. that I am even like even I am I'm shocked that I'm yeah. here today and I'm able to speak about this mm-hmm. and that I was even able to put all this on paper into yeah. a book and and to put it out there for everyone to read so yeah yeah Yeah. I mean and that's very commendable of you honestly because like you mentioned you did not even know you were depressed and that's that's like I feel like that's something that's really you know prominent in our African community because we just want to handle everything by ourselves we think we can do it all you know you got to brace up a man up a woman up and just suck it up and do it, you know, like you will get through this regardless, like seeking for help is looked upon as a weakness, you know, 
confiding in somebody is looked upon as complaining a lot, you know, oh, you're so sensitive or you're, you complain a lot and things like that. But it's like, I feel like it's about time that things change in our community because a lot of people suffer from PTSD. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to our show. If you want to participate in the show or find out more helpful resources, then visit www.livingafricanpodcast.com for more information or email us at hello at livingafricanpodcast.com. Also, don't forget to connect with us on all social media platforms at Living African Podcast. You can also connect with Anyo directly on Facebook or Instagram at Anyo Fombard. Thanks again for listening and let's not forget to be more understanding and nicer to one another.